Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Adams. In this episode, Dr. Brooke Bates and Dr. Neha Pandit discuss pharmacist perspectives on integrating new data from IAS 2023 into clinical practice, specifically adverse event data. Dr. Bates is Specialty Pharmacy Clinical Manager and Pediatric HIV Clinical Pharmacist at Indiana University Health in Indianapolis, Indiana. Dr. Pandit is a professor in the Department of Practice, Science, and Health Outcomes Research in the School of Pharmacy at University of Maryland and a clinical pharmacist at the Thrive Program in Baltimore, Maryland. For the full online educational program, please visit the link in the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what Dr. Bates and Dr. Panda have to say about data presented at IAS. One of the first things I really want to talk about is the Reprieve study, which has been a big one that many people have been talking about, but it's the use of statins for cardiovascular disease prevention in people living with HIV. And what has been known for some time is that patients living with HIV do have an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. And for various reasons of inflammation and immune reactivation, despite even patients being on antiretroviral therapy and having achieved virologic suppression. What this study aimed to do was to identify individuals who using ASCVD risk scores who would not have been started or would not have been recommended to have started a statin medication they initiated pitivastatin four milligrams daily versus placebo in patients that were asymptomatic patients living with HIV on antiretroviral therapy with a low to moderate risk of ASCVD. And that included about 7,700 patients here. The clinical primary endpoint here was the time to the first major cardiovascular event that included cardiovascular death, MI, unstable angina, TIA, stroke, arterial revascularization, or even peripheral artery disease. And then they looked at secondary outcomes of those individual components and then all-cause mortality and some of the other predictors and biomarkers that we'll discuss here in in the outcomes. One of the things to include in here was the population that was evaluated. They did a, a really good job of trying to recruit a variety of individuals for this study. And they found 30, they were able to enroll about 31 individuals that were female at birth, 41% were Black slash African American, um, and 1.7% were transgender. About 50% of patients that were enrolled in this study did have a CD4 count of greater than 200. But all in all, there was a 4.5% ASCVD risk. That was the median ASCVD risk in that population. All right. So I already mentioned that the baseline characteristics, they were balanced pretty well between the two groups of the pitivastatin and the placebo group. And then they mentioned that the ASCVD risk was at 4.5%, the 10-year ASCVD risk. The other thing to note in here was that the median LDL was 108. The first primary major cardiovascular event that was seen here, the risk was reduced by about 35% when on pitivastatin. Um, this study was actually uh, terminated early because of the efficacy of this study with a mean follow-up of about 5.1 years. So really showing the benefit of the statin medication here to prevent the first uh, major cardiovascular event in folks. 
The other thing to really note in here is that the effect of this statin medication was consistent across made a lot of subgroups that includes LDL, baseline LDL, age, sex, CD4 count, ART duration, um, and it was able to decrease one's LDL by about 30% with no change that was seen in the placebo group. When adjusting for some of the other factors that one would think of for risk of cardiovascular disease, even adjusting for a pit of a statin still did a little bit better. So when adjusting for age, race, smoking, hypertension, all of the factors that mostly taken into consideration consideration in the ASCVD 10-year risk score, in addition to Nader CD4 count, total ART duration as well, all of that here was included and still showed sort of a, a benefit with um, pitavastatin. And then one thing to really note in here is which of the population really had the highest benefit from a statin medication. Looking at the number needed to treat, um, you can see here that the number needed to treat was lower in folks that had an ASCVD score of greater than 10%. What that means is that in folks that had the highest risk or highest baseline risk for cardiovascular disease, that's where the biggest benefit was really seen for individuals. So as your risk tends to get higher, starting a patient on a statin medication would be um, an appropriate option. Right. So I'm going to hand this over to Brooke, and we're going to talk a little bit about a, about a patient case. Thank you. So before we move on to additional adverse effects that were discussed, I guess I want to take a second to apply what we just learned to this patient case. So we have a 58-year-old Black male living with HIV who's receiving Vectegravir FTC path daily. Uh, blood pressure is 140 over 79, total cholesterol 225, HDL 37, LDL 125. Uh, this patient has no history of diabetes or hypertension, is a current smoker, and is not currently on aspirin or a statin. So based on all of this information, the patient's 10-year ASCVD risk is intermediate at 16.7%. Saneha, would you recommend starting a statin or would you address modifiable risk factors in this patient, like smoking, treating their hypertension? And if you would recommend a statin, which one do you think that you would recommend? Yeah, great question, Brooke. So with a ASCVD risk of 16.7%, I think I would recommend a statin medication. Obviously, following the guidelines that modifiable risk factors should always be addressed first, I think they can be done in combination with the initiation of a statin medication in this population. Knowing that the ASCVD risk calculator doesn't take into consideration HIV as one of the risk factors, I think it's important for us to really take that into consideration when looking at the patient as a whole. Um, the reprieve study definitely takes a precedence in knowing that even individuals at a lower risk still benefited from having a statin medication on board. And that only highlights the fact that HIV really does need to be included into some of these risk factors overall. I absolutely would. I think in this, in this patient specifically, I probably would have chosen a moderate intensity statin. And pitivastatin definitely would be an option of one to four milligrams. Um, in this study, obviously, it, it looked at four milligram dosing of pitivastatin. But there are other options of atorvastatin and rosuvastatin dosed appropriately and taking into consideration drug-drug interactions of not just their antiretroviral medications, but also other medications that may interact with their statins. Would you have done anything different? 
Uh, no, I absolutely agree with the approach. We definitely should be talking about modifiable risk factors always, but including a statin for this patient is definitely going to, to help their risk, their cardiovascular risk. So it's good that we have several options um, that might be appropriate for a patient depending on accessibility or other factors such as their antiretroviral regimen. So thank you for that. Okay. Getting into weight gain, we've got a, a few studies to talk about here. So the P017 and P018 looked at the effect of switching from deravirine islatravir. And this was a phase three switch study that compared continuing the baseline ARC and P017 or continuing the Tegravir STC TAF and P018. So patients virologically suppressed, receiving their ARC for at least, at least three months. Um, and having no history of failure or immune resistance to deravirine. These studies showed that switching uh, was non-inferior to maintaining their previous regimen. Um, but the researchers also sought to determine if switching would affect body weight, peripheral fat, or trunks. About a third of patients were female at birth. The average age was 47, um, and the median weight was 78 kilograms in this patient population. Uh, so at 48 weeks, the mean changes in weight and peripheral and central fat were similar after switching to deravirine and islatravir when compared to continuing an integrase-based regimen or continuing the baseline regimen not containing a fabrins or TDF, and that was from the P017. And it was similar when compared to continuing the Bictegravir-based regimen in P018. In P017, the mean changes in weight and peripheral trunk fat were higher after switching from deravirine islatravir to deravirine islatravir from regimens containing efavirenz and TDF, as these are known to suppress weight. So it's important to note that switching from an integrase-based regimen to deravirine islatravir does not reduce weight over the 48 weeks. Another study looking at weight gain was the DEFINE study. So this was a phase four randomized active controlled open label study uh, with the goal of determining if switching to a protease-based regimen resulted in mitigation or reversal of weight gain in adults who had experienced at least a 10% weight gain on an integrase-based regimen. Uh, so virologically suppressed adults were included in the study who had had at least a 10% in weight gain over a 36-month period. And they were randomized to receive in a one-to-one -one fashion, either continuing on their integrase-based regimen or switching to darunavir cobicistat fcc tap. The majority of individuals were on a Bictegravir-based regimen at 81%. The median BMI was 32.7 and a median body weight of 100.2. And there was a 14.2% weight gain on baseline with the integrase regimen. At 24 weeks, 90% of the participants remained in the study. There was no significant difference between arms with regards to weight change from baseline at 24 weeks. And most participants in each arm had a change of less than 3% from baseline, and most remained within their baseline BMI and waist circumference categories. And these changes were consistent among all of the subgroups that were analyzed. So the results of this study are really important because there are a few head-to-head -head studies looking at the integrase versus the protease inhibitor. And while this study is ongoing, the initial results really indicate that integrase 
inhibitor-based regimens causing weight gain may not be reversible. Um, and this really highlights the importance of considering an individual's body weight and other metabolic risk factors prior to choosing an initial regimen. So this really brings up a question of if we should be switching patients who have gained at least 10% weight on their integrase inhibitor um, regimen, and would we do something different if there was virologic suppression at play, and what we would switch to based on the defined data? So for me, I think this is a really difficult question to answer in clinical practice. Um, the data from DEFINE really shows that the weight gain may be irreversible, and so um, it's hard to really suggest switching someone if they're already virologically suppressed and otherwise uh, tolerating well, especially considering they may have um, other factors at play, such as drug interactions or um, resistance patterns. That being said, I think it calls into play the shared decision-making, and we can really be talking with our patients about the risks at baseline and after um, to make sure that they have buy-in on their regimen. So um, if they've gained weight on an integrase-based regimen, they may really be wanting to switch a regimen, and we would want to make sure that, assuming appropriate, um, that we're really taking into consideration their wishes to prevent any issues that we have with adherence down the line, especially since in virologic suppression, they've been doing well. Neha, would you do anything differently with your patients? No, but I really liked the idea of shared decision-making with patients on this, because if knowing that it is sort of irreversible at some point, no, switching a medication based off of the data that you just presented may be really difficult. Um, however, if a patient feels that this is a medication that's really causing it, changing it may be helpful just to help show that we're doing something for the patient to be able to prevent further weight gain as well. So I, I can't highlight enough sort of the shared decision making process in here as well, but also looking at other factors that can help contribute to weight loss or um, weight control for patients. Thank you. Thank you very much to Dr. Bates and Dr. Pandit, and thank you to our listeners for joining in. As a reminder, to view the full Contemporary HIV Treatment and Prevention 2023 program on the Clinical Care Options website and to access the slide set for integrating new data from IAS 2023 Pharmacist Perspectives, click on the links in the show notes for this episode. Please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thank you and have a great day.